was quite funny. We did a, a health assessment assessment following this, where the students would come in and introduce themselves to the the mock patient, and every single one of those students started off with their kiora. Uh, my name is. What is your name? How do you pronounce it? Do you have any cultural needs you would like me to consider? My name's Dr. Lynn McKinlay, and I'm here with the final episode of our Headliners podcast series. Today I'm joined by Kiri Hunter, bicultural New Zealander of Indigenous Maori and Northern European descent. Kiri has an extensive nursing background, having worked across healthcare and academic settings in both Aotearoa, New Zealand and Australia. During the most recent decade, Kiri has been, in her words, growing new nurses in New Zealand with specialty teaching areas including adult biophysical health, kawa whakaruruho, or cultural safety, which is the topic we're going to be talking about today, and the Treaty of Waitangi, New Zealand's first immigration and founding document. Kiri's past research focused on new graduate nurses' professional socialisation in the clinical space, including their clinical teaching and learning experiences. Another study explored Indigenous Māori nurses' experience of embedding both clinical and cultural priorities across healthcare settings. Kiri's currently undertaking her PhD and her research explores New Zealand police responses to and interactions with Māori experiencing mental distress. Kiri, it's wonderful to have you with me today for this podcast. Tēnā koe, namihi nui, kia koe, Lynn. Absolute pleasure to be here with you today and um shared this conversation about a topic that's very dear to my heart so thank you it's um it's really great to be with you and and I think this conversation will be of real interest to our listeners today I started reading a little bit about cultural safety um I think in the Maori language kawa I don't know if I got that pronunciation anywhere close to right <laughs> Oh, it's pretty, but, um, sounds pretty good, Lynn. <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad. I mean, what I understand that it, it was originally um, kind of this idea was formulated at a nursing education leadership conference in New Zealand in 1989. And at that time, from my reading, it was um, difficult to recruit and retain, uh, sorry, recruit and retain the Maori nurses. And recognition of the link between culture and health outcomes, particularly health disadvantage experienced by Maori people, um, was really um, critical. And that led to this powerful concept of cultural safety. So I I was really interested to talk with you about what your understanding, you're obviously a deep expert in this area, and the fact that this is really growing in its application and its reach across the world at the moment from, from my reading. Absolutely is. Um, I think firstly, before I even speak about cultural safety, I really have to acknowledge Dr. Idihapati Ramston, who was the, the basically the the creator of, uh, she actually led this uh, notion of cultural safety uh, in mm. Aotearoa, New Zealand, and uh, so the late Idihapati Ramston um, and her Fano, I, I acknowledge uh, her today for me being an educator in the nursing field. I have the I suppose the the task of honouring uh, Irihapiti and her and her work, and it's a, it's a it's certainly a, a task. The mahi, the work, is something that I do take very seriously, and I want to honour 
uh, as accurately as possible in, in the education of new nurses here in, in New Zealand. So just an acknowledgement there first. Uh, so 1989, as you as you mentioned, Lynn was the 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 beginning of this cultural safety concept, um, and yes, it has spread internationally. You can you can see, you know, as you do literature searches and and a, a, across the globe, uh, cultural safety is a, is well revered. Yes, it, it began um, in response to the retention or the poor retention and recruitment of Māori nurses. Um, also to acknowledge the uh, the high levels of deprivation um, amongst our Indigenous Māori population and the fact that health professionals, in, in particular nurses, were not being taught anything at all about Māori culture and how, uh, you know, we've become this hugely biomedical-focused model, a, a monocultural dominant society through the process of colonisation. And there was a great need to to address this uh, the inequities in health that were apparent then, and I'm very sad to say are still hugely apparent today. So over thirty years later, we still are in, in, in the position of of having not really progressed at all with regards to our recruitment and re- retention of Māori nurses as well as the health of Māori, uh, our health outcomes remain w- way below uh, that of non-Māori. So back to your, the, the basis of your question was about cultural safety um, and its popularity worldwide. Or, and its importance, really. And its importance, yeah. I was just thinking, it seems to me that when you start looking at the literature, particularly mm. in countries that have got that vulnerable, disadvantaged First Nations people, mm. um, including in Australia, uh, where we suffer similar, uh, you know, our First Nations people are suffering suffering similarly, but also places like Canada and the US, um, that, that, that's where the literature has sort of started to grow. Um, but it's, it seems to me that it's a much broader concept than even the Indigenous people's health agenda. That's correct. Yes. No, it really did start. It started off as kawa whakaruruhau, which is at the very essence of cultural safety was um, as an Indigenous-led approach, really demanding that individuals and organisations at that organisational level reflect and act around issues of power and privilege. And I think that's where it does strike a chord uh, internationally. So it started off with Māori at the very centre um, and then it grew uh, to an umbrella term, cultural safety, whereby it encompasses people who are of different religions, gender, diversity, um, and so on. Like it just became a big umbrella term for anybody with any difference in culture than other than yourself. Yeah, that's what really struck me when I started reading it. I, I, I suppose when I first started being interested in this, I thought that it was a sort of an extension of cultural competence or cultural knowledge, but it's really much, much more than that, isn't it? It's really about awareness of, of my culture and the difference between my culture and the culture of the person that I'm caring for in the healthcare setting. Yeah, absolutely. It is an extension. And, you know, the term cultural safety 
it, it came about as more of a, a wake-up call, I suppose. It's more of a challenging term that actually you need to act on it. So, it, you know, acknowledging that, that culture is, is a really useful framework to understand people's unique needs, but then to actually act on it. And, and way back before all of that, it's asking people to look deep inside themselves and look at our own positions of power. It's asking people to respect people of difference. Whatever that difference is. Whatever that difference is. Kiri, I was, uh, you, you mentioned the phrase, now I've, I have practiced this a few times, the takawa whakaruruho, which my understanding means a safe place made from principles. Um, I'm just really interested in that term. Like this idea of a safe place really resonates with me. It seems very, it's got a lovely visual to it, you know, that, that this is a place where people, have dif- people who are different to me can feel safe with me. Where does, where does that term sort of come from? As far as I am aware, that was the term coined back in the late 1980s by Erihapati Ramston. I may well be wrong, and it's probably existed for some time way before then, but it's actually come together. It, it does mean cultural safety, kawa meaning the practices, the, the customs, the so the doing side of, of things and then the whakaruruho is the protection side. So it yes, it is a it's a beautiful term in, in that it does it, it means somewhere safe, um, like a, 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 a safe place to be, a culturally safe nest or protective space. Um so in a lot of our nursing programs we'll have a kawafakaruruho committee and that is led by Indigenous Māori and it is a place where the, our Māori nursing students can come and it is, you know, that protective space where they can share anything they want to and know that it is a safe space to be in. So, yeah. And on the other, you know, the other, it's quite interesting, the term for Māori, our, our te reo Māori language is, it does not translate neatly into English, which in your research, Lynn, you've probably discovered. So the term kawa actually, it, it does mean um, sort of the, the practice of the protocols or the, we'd call it tikanga. It also means bitter or sour, which... I find quite interesting in that somebody whose cultural safety has been impinged, it might be the, the feeling that they feel. So interesting looking at that language piece and, and, and the words are so important, aren't they? The words are so important for people to feel safe too, as yeah. well as the actions. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Absolutely. Yeah. In my reading and exploring of cultural safety, what I came to believe really or to think about I suppose is that it's not only about patient safety and health equity it's also healthcare worker safety at work. Uh, I'd be interested in what you think about cultural safety as a factor in workplace health and safety. I agree and I think in that in that sense uh, for ourselves as health professionals going into spaces where where we we don't feel safe our Cultural needs are, are 
are threatened or are affected, and that affects us deeply in a in a more kind of moralistic or or a spiritual sense. Um, and especially when we're talking about retention in our health professional arena, many of us will simply walk away from a job if we feel morally distressed, spiritually distressed, emotionally distressed. Uh, so it's got to be a good fit uh, and a safe place. And I do talk to my students about about that as well. And um, I, I do think cultural safety affects uh, the worker as well. I um, Part of my research with the Māori, Māori nurses in clinical practice, across clinical practice areas throughout Aotearoa New Zealand, this notion of them not feeling, especially as advocates for the, the cultural safety of their Māori patients, and they're working very hard and they recognise the needs of, of Māori, the cultural preferences, cultural practices, and they're working really hard to uh, honour those practices for their patients and to have those cultural needs minimised, um, superseded by, when we say, the physical needs, uh, the tasks that need to be done in, in those practice areas uh, can be quite distressing for for the worker. There's moral distress, isn't there, for the worker when what they want to do, what they want to deliver and how they want to deliver that to their patients yeah. is in conflict with what they're kind of allowed to do or expected to do. That's correct. And, and you know, a lot, uh, I did find that in areas of mental health um, and also our Māori health provider services, which are services for Māori, by Māori, um, the Māori nurses there are, are able to practice and they... Uh, meet the cultural needs not only of the patients but of their own and they grow themselves so which is just so heartening um, whereas there are practice areas that um, they're pushed aside despite the, the the need for New Zealand registered nurses to be culturally competent uh, we still see a lot of pockets of areas where they're, they're not honoring that well, it's 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 more than just ticking the box of having done the cultural competence training, isn't it? It's it's much more from the heart. It is. I was um, yeah. I was uh, reading some um, papers from uh, the King's Fund in the UK. I don't know if you've read any of their papers. There was some work that they're doing on equity, health equity around poverty and and other sort of topics. But I was interested that they are using this um, 3A kind of model of awareness, action, advocacy. And you've mentioned a couple of times about action um, because I think this idea of, you know, a lot of cultural training seems to be about awareness, but it's taking that next step, isn't it, to, to take action and then also to be an advocate. Absolutely. And we talk about equity. You just mentioned equity as well, haven't you? Uh, I would say to my students, and I'm trying to illustrate action. We're going to be going and spending more time with people who are like ourselves. Uh, we have a you know host of of patients and whanau families to care for. We naturally are 
gravitate towards the people that we get on well with and we have a joke with and they're really easy to manage because we talk the same language and so studies have shown that this is what happens. We're yeah. less likely to go down the hallway and spend time with people who are a little bit different from us, who, you know, they may um, have different customs that are going on in the room or different foods that, you know, we're not used to or it, it's foreign to to the to the nurse. And so we spend the least amount of time with those folk um, and therefore it, it, it means that they get less interventions, they get less referrals, they, they, they stay in hospital shorter time and they uh, have worse health outcomes as a result. And in some papers I've read, things like less pain management, is that something that you see as well? Less, less offering of pain relief or... Oh, absolutely. Sort of the statistics are, yeah, the statistics um, show quite clearly less mm. pain relief, less medications are offered or prescribed. Absolutely. We've got a long mm. way to go, haven't we? we so do. one of the actions then, because I was, I was thinking of, of, you know, for our listeners who are, in, I, I guess, I, I hope our listeners are a little bit, a little bit intrigued by this topic and mm. will think, well, what are some things that I can do? Obviously, awareness and just being open to some new ideas is something. But in mm. terms of actions that people can take, so you're suggesting one action might be to deliberately try to spend more time with the people who are maybe I feel a little bit uh, different to me or maybe just a little bit less comfortable with. That might be one action I could take. Have you got any other sort of suggestions for people? Oh, many. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> glad I asked. <laughs> we had a group of students because um, I actually teach um, pre-nursing registration course as well, so entry level, just a couple of weeks ago in class, a group of level four students, and I said to them, you don't have to know everything, but you know how are you going to know what somebody's cultural needs are? And I posed this to them, and I you know, ask them to think about what you're going to say because it is about the questions you're going to ask people and really just to think hard about how am I going to know? How will I know? Do I, you know, just look at them and assume that what their needs are? Of course not. So they come up with a question and it might be something like, do you have any cultural needs you would like me to consider? And it just really is an open question that just can be answered, yes or no, or it can be a gateway to somebody saying, actually, yes, I, I want to have my whānau or my family here all the time. I want them to stay overnight. And it might not come from the patient themselves. It might come from the auntie, you know. Mm -hmm. But giving people that opportunity to say, actually, these things are important to me and to us as a family, that we can have you on board as our, as our nurse, as our healthcare professional, and then we can be on the same page because mm. it may take some advocating or advocacy on the part of the health professional to ensure that these needs are met. So as simple as saying, do you have any cultural needs you would like me to consider and then it's putting themselves in the position where you're not the expert 
these people, our clients, our patients and their families, they are the experts in their care. So, and it was quite funny. We did a, a health assessment assessment following this where the students would come in and introduce themselves to the, the mock patient. And every single one of those students started off with their kia ora. Uh, my name is, what is your name? How do you pronounce it? Do you have any cultural needs you would like me to consider? And I, I <laughs> well done, you know, Kerry. <laughs> it, it wasn't one of the marking criteria at all, but it just it made me smile because I thought, here we, what a poignant lesson to have learnt um, at this very very early stage of a, a health professional career, um, you know, and hopefully going forward that is reinforced along the way um I had a and sorry to, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you but that the question that came before it's important too isn't it how do you pronounce your name and that's oh, a absolutely. real sign of respect isn't it to actually mm. ask mm. that question when I say because they might think oh why is it important but actually it's it's just as important if not more important than asking somebody, do you have any allergies? But um, in these lovely conversations with with our students, um, again, more recently, a student who'd recently immigrated from South Africa, and as we were weaving our way through the class content, um, she said, oh, I would never, ever, ever have thought about cultural difference if not for this conversation mm. it's really interesting to me that when you start to think about it and you might begin from a place of how will I ask my patient who's a, a first nations person or a person from another culture ethnically how will mm. I ask them mm. but then but then it, it's much broader too isn't it because it might be about somebody who's got a different way of viewing their own gender or somebody who's got a different family structure to me or a different approach to work even or a different approach mm. to living that that is so different to mine that it's uncomfortable almost builds it up is. that sort of bias in me and I may not even be aware of that mm, mm. yeah absolutely and touching on the un unconscious biases that each and every one of us whether we like to admit it or not, actually carry with us. You, when I was talking to you earlier, when we were setting this up, you, you said a really interesting thing, Kerry, and um, I've actually quoted it since when I was talking to someone else. You were talking about this idea that we've all got and that unconscious bias in us and we have to kind of reach deep inside and tell it to shush uh, so that we can do our work effectively. I have this kind of mental image of reaching into the back of my brain somehow and, and telling that little voice to be quiet. And uh, in actual fact, I found myself, like I'm not by no means, you know, virtuous and um, pure. I found myself teaching a class of international qualified nurses, Indian and Filipino nurses who were wanting to become New Zealand registered nurses. And in that class group I had, there was a, a New Zealand uh, European nurse and I unconsciously found myself 
speaking to the New Zealand European nurse more than the rest of the group. And I really, because it was easy, because I knew that she understood me um, and I, I caught myself, you know, as the day progressed, I, re- I actually realized that I, what I was doing and I was giving her my attention and prioritizing my engagement with her over the others. Uh, and I thought, there it is. And I caught myself. Mm. But being open to uh, being aware of the fact that there was a risk there for you as for any of us. Yeah, that, that openness to the idea. That's right, that it was yeah. was happening and that I needed to not do that. So make the yeah. extra effort. Yeah. It's a human thing that we want to gravitate towards people who are like us, who think like us, who look like us. Um, and yet there's so much, you know, richness and so much importance in and being able to see beyond that. Yes. I was just thinking back to your advice or your wisdom in terms of concrete actions that people can take if they want to be more culturally aware and and I guess create better cultural safety for their patients Mm. um, whether they're doctors or nurses or you know hospital managers I suppose um, health service managers it seems to me it's a little bit like the patient safety movement has this question you know where you say to people what matters to you this idea that understanding what matters to people helps you to create healthcare that's more relevant mm. and um, you know more tailored to their needs mm. um, so I guess you've given us a couple of um, ideas already one is about I guess that idea of deliberately um, noticing people that might be a bit different to me and how do I you know spend more time to build that familiarity um, but also this I, this question about asking people about what matters to them in the sense of culturally. Mm. You know, do you have any cultural needs that I need to consider? Mm. Have you got any other sort of, um, from, you know, you've obviously had a vast experience of teaching this and working with nurses. Have you got any other sort of practical practical tips for people to take action or, or indeed to to advocate in a way that culturally appropriate? I suppose an answer to that question, Lynn, is... Looking at ourselves, you know, do we want to just do a mediocre job or do we want to do a a great job? And, you know, most patients will consider that respectful questions about their cultural background and their preferences demonstrate the health professional's genuine concern and respect for ourselves, for the person. Um, and when we mm. talk about engagement, what do we want? We want good outcomes. We want our we want our patients to attend appointments. We want them, you know, to to access. We want equity of access. We want equity of treatment, and we want, want equity of outcomes. Surely, that's what we want. And we want our patients to, I guess, listen to us and to consider what we want. What we want to offer them they're not going to listen to us if they don't think we're listening to them right it's a two-way street yes absolutely and it goes really it really goes back to what does it look like if a patient's not engaging with you you know their body language they're looking at the wall they're looking out the door they don't attend and also having a little twist on that is 
that's something that we talk about here. It's so easy for us as health professionals to go, oh, they didn't attend their appointment. So they're placing the blame, we're placing the blame on the person themselves. Mm. And right, one day I went to a nurse, Māori nursing hui, uh, which is a, a, a gathering of Māori nurses here in, in New Zealand. And I forget who it was. And she stood up and she said, instead, we should be writing, instead of DNA, we should be writing DNI. And that stands for did not inspire that we didn't inspire that person to be there. So, wow, that's pretty powerful way of reframing that, isn't it? Again, it's, it's blame, it's power, but it's providing a service that meets the needs of, of our, of, of our people. Mm-hmm. That makes place feel safe to come back to the, the English version of, of, um, of, of that word. Yes. Yeah. So at the end of the day, it is about providing choice and, you know, we're not the ones and we have this, as I mentioned, them, especially in New Zealand, it's become such a monocultural dominant society where if you don't fit in, then you're marginalized and, and you experience racism, you know, but people really should have the choice, the choice to accept a service or not. Um, and they also should have the choice to have alternate services offered that actually reflect their true cultural needs, which I'm hoping is is where we're sort of stepping into. Can I ask you, uh, so I imagine that this podcast will be listened to by health leaders, people who run health clinics and hospitals. Well, at least I hope that it will be listened to by some people in those roles, leadership roles. So I was just thinking about what you just said then. Let's say we have a, a rate of non-attendance by a certain group of patients, whether they be Maori patients in New Zealand or First Nations people in Australia or, 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 or a culturally diverse group for whatever, for whatever reason. How do I untangle whether or not that person's not coming because they don't choose to accept that service, which is their sort of choice, versus I haven't made it safe enough. Is there a way I can untangle those two things, the choice versus the, I guess, rejection of my service that I've offered? And it's very valid, Lynn, because how do you know what the reason is? I guess you'd have to ask, but then I suppose it's how do you how do you ask? Um, well, in, in New Zealand, we would... We would hold um, what we call wānanga or, or gatherings in a safe space, in, a, in an Indigenous Māori space where people feel that they're able to share and, and participate in active discussion. And that needs to be led by, by Māori. So engaging with the cultural leaders because in in some communities it it may be that there's a particular ethnic group or a particular group of people who've moved to that country from another country that sort Mm. of whatever that group may be uh so engaging with the community the leaders to Mm. i guess try to understand both the cultural needs but also the barriers in the healthcare system yeah absolutely and again it's who's who's saying it's a problem as well who's identifying the problem yeah it's very it's a very if we knew the difficult topic (laughs) 
Know, but if, if you've got yeah. people not attending, the DNIs, as you said, the, mm-hmm. did not inspire them to come, mm-hmm. maybe from the point of view of bias, I need to assume that I didn't make it safe enough as the first point. Oh, look, it might be You know multi- what I mean? I'm not it sure. It might be multifactor or they might not have enough money to buy petrol, they might not own a car, so, you know, it might go right back to access um, issues of poverty and uh, all, the, all of the social determinants of health. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, mm. I'm looking, I'm at home because I'm looking after my grandmother who's unwell or my children mm. need me and and my my family needs are, are far greater than my individual needs and I think that's where we've we've gone towards a more kind of individualistic universal universalistic healthcare um in mm. effect have moved away from the the collective realities of indigenous peoples where mm. um the person is not going to just go and look after themselves. They're going to put Fano family first. And when resources are scarce, then prioritise spending those resources differently, mm. whether those resources mm. are time or money or petrol or... Yeah, and cultural, literac- cultural literacy. We, we, you know, we, we don't use the word health. You know, again, that's placing the blame on the person that their health their health literacy is low and that's probably why they don't understand the importance of of attending this appointment. How uh, should we reframe that, Kerry? I think our understanding of, of cultural literacy, you know, what are the mm. what are the actual cultural priorities for this person? Um, so you will see here in uh, bringing it back to New Zealand, I'm very conscious of uh, uh, this is you know international um, audience, but here in New Zealand, our, our non-government organisations, which, as I mentioned earlier, are Māori led by Māori and for Māori. Well, not only for Māori, for all people, <clears throat> understand cultural needs. They understand that if you can't just give somebody a pamphlet and say. This explains your ERCP that you're having down in Christchurch next week. We go back, we peel it back, and we understand that this person actually can't read. So we're spending time actually transporting that person to English literacy lessons right at its basis, you know, right back mm. at the grassroots. Mm. The need is, is, is far greater. At the beginning of our conversation, you know, we spoke about 1989 being the crux of the introduction of cultural safety and nursing education. I remember as a, a young nursing student in 1991 actually being part of that introduction. And we have to remind ourselves that 30 years isn't a, lo- a long time. Not a long time in human history, is it? It's not really. It, it's very disappointing, as I mentioned, to not see any improvement in our workforce or our health statistics. And mm. we can't we can't give up, you know, we just have to keep forging forward. And yes, the next generation, hopefully understanding a lot more about our history because it has been hidden. So that not only nurses, but everyone in New Zealand doesn't continue to blame the victims, which are our Indigenous Māori, of 
historical and social processes and for the current plight, you know, why are Māori impoverished? Why are Māori hasatistics so poor? Why are Māori incarceration rates and unemployment rates so high? You know, mm. oh, we blame them, you know. Well, actually, if you understood the history, you you will stop blaming the victims. So... Mm. Um, and I say to my students, I hopefully one day I won't be able to, I'll be out of a job. You know, I won't have to stand in front of these these seas of faces who mm. one or two of them might have some knowledge of our history um, and the rest are, are completely unaware and they walk out mm. like the scales have been lift, lifted from their eyes, you know, and it's like, wow, really? That went on? Um, so going forward educated would be my goal <laughs> our goal and all the other Māori nurses and nurse educators that have just have been working for many years certainly and just in a one of many many workers mm. here we talk about competency don't we we mentioned you mentioned that about it being a tick box exercise well, that's think, a risk isn't it mm. Oh, for me, it's it's really well, who's deeming you're competent. You are. You're getting your friend to say, "Oh, yes, she is," and here's an example of how competent. But if we look back at to the true essence of cultural safety, it's the patient who determines whether you're being culturally safe towards mm. them. Yes, and I think. I think uh, our our ability to receive feedback or to look at evidence that we're not being culturally safe and make sense of that without, as you say, without blaming the patient, without saying, well, that patient didn't didn't turn up for the appointment, therefore mm. they're not interested in receiving treatment. Um, mm. Maybe they're just not interested in receiving it the way I offered it. <laughs> and there's the there's the bitter, the bitter, the kawa <laughs> that's the bitter. bitter. <laughs> the other meaning to the word, isn't it? Uh, mm. We don't like to look at ourselves as in a negative light, but uh, maybe a little bit more of that feedback, patient feedback. But yeah. again, again, there's power and power imbalance. We don't do we want to hand over the power? Oh, will patients be brave enough to give us the feedback we need? <laughs> Exactly. And it's a big ask, isn't it? But um, yeah. but I think just remembering that it is cultural safety really is about is determined by the, the patient themselves. You've given us such a lot to think about today, Kerry. Um, certainly what I've really heard from you is about the the fact that while we're making slow progress in a lot of these health equity you know, your your health equity agenda in New Zealand and, and mine in Australia and, and I'm sure mm. for, for many of our listeners around the world they've got their own challenges in this space. Yeah. And I guess what I've heard is is the importance of really trying to take some responsibility for the fact that I need to do something differently if I'm going to make it culturally safe for my patients who are different to me. Mm. I need to, you know, open up and reach inside and look for those biases that I might hold. But you've also shared, I think, some real, really concrete, quite simple things that individuals can do to begin to become more 
I suppose more self-aware about about um, about how I can you know choose to behave differently if I want to create that safe space for the patients. So it feels like it's a it feels approachable now because you've you've you know you've given me a couple of really uh, and and hopefully given our listeners a couple of really simple things actually that we can do when we you know kind of notice if you like here's a patient who's different to me whether it be you know ethnically different or different in another way to mm. say well ask them what's culturally important and things that I might need to consider and to you know be open to the fact that non-engagement in healthcare might be just as much to do with me as to do with them that I haven't actually mm. given them the healthcare offered that healthcare in a way that feels safe to them I think you've summed it up really well there Lynn have you got any other, yeah, any other sort of, I guess, last minute, you know, ideas or thoughts? Well, it does. I mean, we always say it goes back to the leadership as well, the leadership and the culture of a place that you work in um, and being, being, mm. it being made okay that you actually advocate on the part of your patients. And if you see a patient who's not getting the care they need, you notice that they're getting more pain relief or that, that they're getting preferential treatment over somebody else and having a safe environment where you can actually talk about that and say hey that patient come on you know and that's the the team approach so having an environment that you work in where you can say hey you didn't chart the same medications for that patient down there why the the space for advocacy mm. Because, yeah, we can do so much ourselves. And I always, you know, I paddle, call them outrigger canoes, we call them waka, and a team, you know, with six mm-hmm. six women in a team. And we think we just sit in a team and paddle along together and the outcome's going to be what the team can produce. But in actual fact, and I say to the girls paddling, you know, you make a difference. So... Mm. But it does need to be at definitely at an individual level, but also the organisational leadership level as well. That needs to be mm. looked at. Kiri, I've learnt so much from listening to you today and for having a conversation with you. Uh, it's really been a very rich um, discussion. And I hope that our listeners have also, yes, been made a bit curious about this to you know to 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 look in the mirror a little bit and to think about their own part in creating a healthcare place which is safer for their patients regardless of whether their patients are um, from different racial or ethnic backgrounds or or different to us in any way at all Mm. Um, even even age or you know there's lots and lots of ways in which we differ to our patients but you know, it's it's really I'm really heartened also to learn that there's some practical, simple, relatively simple things that I can do to start to start on this journey and break it down into something that's achievable for me. Thank you for having me. And with that, we reach the end of today's podcast: cultural safety, creating safe spaces in health. I'm not sure about you, but I learned a lot from listening to Kerry Hunter and her experiences in researching, teaching and advocating for cultural safety. I'd like to take this opportunity to remind our members that you can join us on our next Beating Burnout virtual workshop. 
These workshops are free of charge for members. Please use the link in the podcast description to register. For more information about medical protection, or if you're already a member and would like a certificate for listening today, please look for details in the description. I've been your host, Lynn McKinlay, and it's been a real delight to share this headliner series of podcasts with you.